celebrate today, right? You guys know where this is going, don't you? Come on, Browns. I'm a Browns fan. This has been like two years since I got to celebrate a win, so you know we're going there. How do you not like the Browns, right? I mean, come on. Like, everybody, everybody's got to support the underdog. We forgot what it felt like to win. It's beautiful, especially since Pittsburgh hasn't won a game yet, so that's cool. Um, Sorry, I, I'm from northeastern Ohio, so I gotta, I gotta do that. Um, and then is the first day of fall. That's pretty cool. Like, um, literally, like, pretty cool. Like, it's awesome. I'm excited to the changing of seasons and uh, and what the new, the new season has for. So, if you're here in Daniel chapter two, just to kind of pick up on last week. If you missed last week, you can go back and you can look at or listen to any of our messages on our website or on our YouTube channel. You can do that. Uh, recommend that. Uh, that way you can, you can track along, you can talk about this stuff, you can work it out to say, okay, here's what we talked about on Sunday, but what does this mean for us? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for our family or our, our missional community? And so to process this. So to kind of catch up on the story, right? Last week we talked about these, this handful of, of, of Jewish boys, these, these Hebrew young men, and they were, um, they were violently taken from their homeland, Right? So they sort of plucked out of their homeland and taken 900 miles away to this foreign culture, Babylon. And here they are. Um, they've lost their rights. They've lost their ability to kind of make choices for themselves. They are, like, they are servants of the empire, the Babylonian empire. A Babylonian empire was, was the most powerful and, and most brutal empire that existed up until this point. So it's massive, massive power. And so here they are, these four young men, and they have been just sort of enculturated. They've been, they're bright, they're, they're like, they stand out in a crowd, these four. And, um, and so they've been pulled into the king's service, and, and they're just, they're swimming in the culture of Babylon, right? They, they had to learn the Babylonian language. They had to learn um, what it looked like to, uh, to, to learn the education system of Babylon. They had to learn how to dress like Babylonian culture around them. So all of this stuff is just sort of coming at them, and it's brand new. And they go through three years of this training to be like in the king's council, these wise men. So like did a three-year master's program. To, to learn how to be a, a, a wise man for the king. But what was it, if you remember from chapter 1, where they drew the line and they said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Do you remember? The food. We'll learn the language, we'll learn the education, we'll, we'll do all that stuff, but we will not eat your food. And do you remember why? What would the food represent for them? Identity, allegiance. To eat the food of the king was to give their allegiance to the king of Babylon and to the Babylonian empire. And they wouldn't do it. Because their allegiance was to another kingdom, uh, to, to God, who, who they saw as the king of heaven and earth. And so here's the deal, this tension, right? This tension of being in the world but not of the world. This tension of saying, man, we live in a culture, and, and this culture is going to sweep us like a moving river. And we're in it. We don't have any choices. We are in it. Um, but we do make choices about what we go along with and what we swim against. Does this make sense? Do you feel this in your own life? To say, man, the culture is, is moving, and there's a current to it, and it's moving quickly. And, and what, as people of faith, as people who have said our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, we follow Jesus, and there are places where Jesus is going to lead us not to just sort of all float on all right, but to swim against the current. 
And, and so we, we were constantly like making decisions. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to swim against the current, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get tired. It's hard. It would be much easier to just sort of float, float, float along. But Jesus doesn't call us to easy things. And so if we are going to swim against the current, you know what we're going to need? We're going to need regular like infusions of energy, of vision to say, this is why I'm doing it. This is why I'm doing hard stuff. We're going to need to remember again and again that we're not alone, that as we swim against the stream, we're surrounded by others all around the world who are doing the same things. We come together in this rhythm of worship on Sunday mornings to, to remind us of this is what we believe. This is who we are. This is our identity. And we're together. We're not alone. We're part of God's people. This is the story of Daniel, and it is so relevant for us. So let's jump in. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Now when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, Now I have a dream. Right? I, like that. I have a dream. Very different from the dream we know about from Martin Luther King. I've had a dream and it troubles me. And I want to know what it means. Verse 4. Now then the astrologers, they answered the king, Ah, may the king live forever. Long live the king. This is what you're supposed to say, right? May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will make something up. And what do they say? Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. But the king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what the dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and turn, your houses turned into piles of rubble. Uh-oh, right? Uh, so we'll go on here, a couple more verses. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Now once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. But the king answered, I am certain you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Whoa! Like... So the king has his dream, and if you've caught, like, the king makes a big deal, and Babylonians made a big deal about the mystical arts. I mean, these astrologers reading the signs in the sky, and, and that's going to actually come in uh, later, chapter 5, pretty cool play on the whole astrology thing, and, and God undermining that whole system. Um, but they, they, they cared a lot about these mystical arts and incantations and sorcery and all this stuff. And, and so this is what these wise men did. They, they, like, they had these books full of dream interpretations, right? Of like, so the king would normally, he would tell a dream, and they believed in like dreams and all this stuff. And, um, and to have a bad dream was, was seen in their day as a bad omen. Like this is a bad, bad deal to have a troubling dream. And so he, he gets this dream, and he's troubled by it, he's disturbed by it, and he calls his, his magicians and astrologers, and normally he would just tell them the dream, and then they would go back to their books, and they would say, ah, oh, yes, like, here, here's what it means, here, oh, great king, and they would do some song and dance and make him believe, like, they know what they're talking about. The problem is they don't have a sweet clue what they're talking about. I mean, they, 
they don't know what they're talking about. And how many of you feel bad for them? Like the king says, no, no, no. It's not how it's going to work this time. You tell me what I dreamt while I was sleeping in my own bed, and then you interpret it for me, and that's how I'll know you're telling me the truth. Other than that, what's going to happen? Off with your head! Some heads are going to roll, right? I mean, this is what, this is what troubled tyrants do, right? When, off with their heads! Um, and so, what do you do? What do you do if you're one of these like, wise men? You, you're just one of these poor fools, right? Do you make something up? Do you just like, well... I see a pink monkey riding a unicorn across the sky. And, you know, like, you just take a shot. Like, what's, what do you have to lose? But they're like, they're in despair, right? This is their, this is their lives. Um, this is what, so the, the king, you know, he's a, he's a troubled tyrant. Uh, he's cruel and he's oppressive and, and he, he's convinced they're just trying to buy time so they can make stuff up. So he's just angry and he says, no, 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 it's going to mean death for you. It's going to mean death for you. How many of you have had a tyrant as a leader in your life? Like, and, and you realize, like, if they would have had the power to, like, say, off with their head, they probably would have. Um, you may have had, like, people in your family who ran the family like a tyrant, right? My rules go, and they just make decrees. You will do this. Like, early on in parenting, this is a parenting little tip here, um, Early on in parenting, Carmen and I, like as our kids kind of got their will of their own and, you know, started to push back. Like I found myself like when I'm like anxious and I'm tired and I'm not thinking clearly, you just make decrees. If you do that again, you won't watch TV for a year. Like you've made these statements and then as it's coming out of your mouth, you realize, oh, that's a problem. I don't want to like, I don't want to follow through on that. And so we had to learn very quickly to not, like, bet the farm on parenting, you know, p- penalties and punishments. But there's that piece of, like, a tyrant kind of parent that maybe we had or a tyrant sort of coach. They just make decrees. If you, I remember having a coach who was, like, we were a soccer coach, and we were losing. We were actually winning the game, but we should have been winning by more. And he says, like, if you don't win by three goals, you will run until the sun goes down. It's, like, three hours away. It's, like, so thankfully we, we, we had to run, but we didn't have to run that much. So, like, maybe some of us have had these tyrants in our life who just make decrees um, and then begin to hopefully back off of them later. But this is what the king does. Now, now here's what the, the, these poor fools, they come back to the king, or they're, they're there with the king, and he, listen to what they say. This is so powerful. Verse 10. So there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. There's nobody. No king, however great or mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one, now listen to this, no one can reveal it except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Do you hear what they're saying? We don't, we don't have a connection to the gods. Like, we just, do our, we just do our little astrology thing. We just make stuff up, and it looks good, and it sounds good, but... There's no connection to the divine, to God. Um, now, if you're a Jew reading this, this, this book was, was, story was written down in about 200 years before Christ, the book of Daniel. If you're a Jew and you're reading this story and you read this last line, you hear it, somebody may be saying it out loud, and they say, and no one can reveal this except the gods and they do not live among humans. What's your first thought as a Jew who, who's... So your story is the Old Testament? Yeah, God, God does actually live among humans. God wants to live among humans. The whole story of the Old Testament is, a, is of a God who wants to make his dwelling among his people. 
Like in the Exodus, right? You remember the Old Testament story of the Exodus where God's people are in slavery and he tells Pharaoh, who was the the troubled tyrant at the time, there's always troubled tyrants in the world, um, and he tells Pharaoh, he says, let my people go. And what does he want with them? He says, let them come to me so that they can worship me. I want to be with them, right? And, And so he brings them out of Egypt eventually. And, and then in Exodus 25, verse 8, listen to this. This is what God says to them. Uh, while they're wandering through the wilderness, he says, Then have them make a sanctuary, a dwelling place for my name, and I will dwell among them. See, the whole Testament is a story of a God who wants to dwell with people, who wants to dwell with, his, with humans, people made in his image, who wants to be close and with us. So if you're a Jew reading the story, you'd be like, wait, 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 yeah, let me, let me introduce you to the God who does live among humans who wants to be known, who wants to make his will known. Do you see that this, this whole like impossible thing that the king has set up for them has, has revealed the utter foolishness of all of these astrologers and diviners and all of this stuff, and it has opened the door wide for Daniel and those who follow the God who does dwell with people. Do you see that? Are you with me? Anybody else? Okay. So, so there's, uh, there, the story uh, goes on then. Uh, Daniel, he... Uh, let's jump in here, verse 14. Now, Nebuchadnezzar said, uh, no, let's, let me, do, 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 pipe music, all kinds, able to rescue from my hand. Oh, I jumped to chapter 3. That was the problem. Sometimes you're in the wrong spot. You're like, I, this, none of this looks familiar to me. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes those things happen in front of people, right? So this made the king very angry and furious, and he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. Hold on. Uh, what is Daniel, and what are his three friends? What's their job? They're wise men. So what does this mean for them? Their, their heads are on the line. So the decree was issued, the wise men to be put to death, and the men were sent out to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, the executioner here, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. When the executioner is sent for you, speak to them with wisdom intact. This is, this is great, right? Great practical advice here. Um, and then he asked the king's officer, now why did the king issue such a harsh decree? So the man explained all the matter to Daniel. And so Daniel went into the king and he asked him for time and, that he might interpret the dream. Now what was the king not willing to give the others? Time. No, 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 you're just trying to fool me. Um, but what does he give Daniel. He gives him time. And what does Daniel say? Give me time so that I may what? Interpret the dream. So Daniel says, if you give me time, I'm confident the dream will be interpreted. Do you hear the faith? that Dan- He doesn't know the interpretation yet, but he trusts that God is going to reveal it to him. This is powerful stuff. Um, so verse 17, so Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, these three who were with him. And he urged them to plead for the mercy of God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he, might, he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel's not alone. As he's swimming upstream in Babylon, he's got a commissional community around him. He's got these three friends. He's not a lone ranger all like off by himself listening to God. He is doing it in community with these three others. And they pray together. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And so Daniel prays the God of heaven. Daniel just like he's, God gives him the vision and he, um, he just launches into song. And he says, God, praise your name forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. 
Hold on. Stop right there for a second. What is Babylon known for? Who, who's surrounding the king? These people who the king are his counselors. What's their title? They're, they're wise men, right? What are they known for? Wis- wisdom. And what do they not have? Wisdom. What is, what is Babylon known for? Who is the king? He's the most powerful man in the world. And what does the king not have the power to do? Interpret his own dream. So Daniel is just like praising God. God, you are the one who has wisdom. You are the one who has power. He, this God, changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and he raises up others. Kingdoms will rise and fall and God is in it all. So Daniel, um, he, he has this amazing, um, this amazing song of just God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness. So then uh, he goes back to the executioner and he says, hey, uh, take me into the king. I've got the interpretation for him. So the executioner ushers him into the king's presence and he tells the king, so I found this guy, Daniel, and he's, he's one of the exiles from Judah and he can give you the interpretation. So Daniel goes in uh, to the king's presence and, uh, and he, he just begins to tell him this dream. Verse 27, he says, No wise man. <coughs> he says, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king what this mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Verse 30, As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Do you hear Daniel's humility in this? He doesn't walk into Nebuchadnezzar's chambers and say, King, I've got it. I did it. It was me, me and my friends. He says, there's nobody alive who could do what you're asking, but there is a God alive who can do what you're asking. This God who's personal, who reveals mysteries, who's, who's involved. And so Daniel begins to tell him his dream, and he says he... He sees this dream, verse, verse 31. He says, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood this large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue. It was awesome in appearance. And the head of the statue was made of pure gold, and its chest and arms were silver, and its belly and thighs were bronze, and its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out that was not made by human hands. And it struck the statue at its feet of iron and clay, and they were smashed. Then the iron and clay and bronze and silver and gold, this whole statue was broken to pieces and became like dust, like chaff, on a threshing floor in the summer. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain, and it filled the whole earth. So this is Daniel says, this is what you dreamed. You imagine Nebuchadnezzar, like, eyes wide open right now, like, this, this is crazy. Now, this, this dream, Daniel goes on to explain it, and he says this dream, it, it represents, this statue represents these kingdoms, these powers, these empires. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, which if you're Nebuchadnezzar, you're like, that's what I thought, the head of gold, right? That's good news. But he says there's going to be another kingdom that comes after you, and it's the chest, and and then another kingdom after that, the, you know, it says the belly you know, made of iron and then the legs and feet and all this stuff. And it says this, this, this statue represents kingdoms. And, and all these kingdoms are eventually going to crumble. They're all going to crumble. Your kingdom, everybody's kingdom is going to crumble. Now, 
again, if you're reading this story like with Old Testament ears, here's the interesting thing is that the word statue is the word salem. Everybody say salem. All right? And in other places in the Old Testament, this word for statue, salem, is translated image. Now, where is the first place in the Bible you hear this word image? Anybody know? Just as what? Just as one, right? The very first page, opening scene of the Bible, Genesis 1. Take a look at what it says. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, our salem, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the sky and over the livestock and the wild animals that live along the ground or in the creatures that move along the ground. Uh, next slide. So God created mankind, or it should be humankind, because it's both male and female here. It's just represent, representing all of humanity. In his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. But God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So the Bible opens with this God making images of God. Human beings made in God's image. Do you know throughout the Old Testament, there was this prohibition, you can't make an image of God. Do you know why? One reason is because any image we make of God, any sort of statue or, you know, sculpture, is going to fall far short of representing who God really is, right? That's one reason. And do you know the other reason? It's because God already has an image of himself. In fact, the whole world is full of images of God. Who is it? You. Look around the room. Oh, hey, there's an image of God. That's pretty cool. Like, this is how the Bible opens. Like, the, the world is full of people made in God's image. And what are these people who are made in God's image called to do? First, they're called to fill the earth, to make more life. This is not the first, or this is not the, the great commandment, but it is my favorite commandment. Um, to make more life. Some of you will get that later. Um, right? So the, the part of being made in the image of God is that these people, man and woman, they can enter into a covenant relationship with each other. They can enter into covenant, and out of that covenant relationship, they can make more life. How cool is that? Like, that's part of being made in the image of God. This is the original commandment. Fill the earth. Be fruitful. Multiply. Increase in number. And then what's the other command? Is to rule. Like, look around the room and say, you rule, right? Don't do that. That's kind of lame. Oh, sorry about that. Rule over. What do you rule over? As, as people made in the image of God, what are you called to rule over? Fish. What does that mean? Rule over the, like, fish and the sea and the rule over the birds and the, the air and over the animals and the land, right? We're just called to take care of this world, to steward it, to, to use our authority to take care of it. What are we not called to rule over? Each other. Each other. You're made in God's image. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over all of creation. But don't rule over each other. Why not? Because whose job is that? It's God's. It's God's. And what does this statue represent? What does this solemn, this image represent? represents all these powerful nations who have set their thrones up to rule over each other. And Daniel says, here's what's going to happen, Nebuchadnezzar. This rock is going to come, and it's not going to be a a man-made thing. It's going to come from God, and it's going to come, and it's going to crush the base, the very foundations of this, this way of ruling over each other, this statue. 
and it's going to crush it. And all those kingdoms, all those powers, all those thrones are going to crumble into dust and they're going to be swept away and nobody will remember them. But this rock that crushed them, it's going to grow into a mountain that fills the whole earth. This is what Daniel says. And, and as followers of Jesus, we believe that that rock has come, that that Jesus was this, this fulfillment of this picture of this rock that comes from God that takes out the very foundation of this way of ruling with power over humanity. See, Jesus, um, he, he starts his ministry. And do you know what he says? The kingdom of God is at hand. The rule of God, the reign of God, the government of God, it's here, it's now, it is breaking into this world. And Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else. I mean, you, you can't read the Gospels and not hear this message. The kingdom, the rule, the reign, the government of God is breaking into this world. And then Jesus, he, uh, in John 16, you know what he says? He says, take heart, I have conquered the world. I've conquered, I've overcome the world. And then do you know what happens to him? He's arrested. He's beaten. He has this purple robe for royalty put on him. He's spit on. He has a crown of thorns put on his head. And he's crucified on a Roman cross, a Roman instrument of death by the, the, the kingdom of this world, Rome at the time. And he's, he's nailed to this cross with a sign above his head that says, The King of the Jews. And it all looked like mockery, right? It all looked like this cruel joke. And then he was killed, and then three days later he rose again. He rose again. And, and he, he came back from the dead, and he spoke these words, peace be with you, and he sent his disciples out into the world to preach the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. See, the kingdom of God, this God who comes and who crushes the foundations of all nations, of all powers, of all rulers that try to set up their, their reign over other people, he crushes them at the foundations, but he doesn't do it with military force. He doesn't do it riding into Jerusalem you know, on, a, on a stallion with his sword blazing and, and taking out the Roman powers. He does it by giving his own life. This is the upside-down power of the kingdom of God. And this is why the Apostle Paul can write in Colossians 2, he says, having disarmed, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. How does Jesus crush the kingdoms of this world? By allowing himself to be crushed. And then you know what Jesus calls us to do? Follow him. We sang the song earlier, and do you realize what you were singing? It says, the lamb has overcome. The lamb has overcome. We, we sang the song, beautiful song. What does that mean? What happened to the lamb? The picture is that Jesus is the lamb of God who was slain who gave up his life. But the Lamb of God was not just some weak, some, some sort of wimpy little lamb. The Lamb who was slain was actually the Lion of God. This is how the kingdoms of this world crumble. They crumble through self-sacrificial love. And so people of God, you and I who have given our allegiance to Jesus, who have trusted him, we trust that God's dwelling is among people. 
that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, that God's Spirit comes and makes his dwelling among us. And we together, we get to swim upstream in this world together and we get to follow the way of Jesus and we get to trust that as we follow Jesus, this world might be so difficult and things might be really ugly and really violent, but we put our trust in the kingdom of God that will fill the whole earth and will never fail. This is why we pray, God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we just keep swimming. Just keep swimming.